Text this morning is Job chapter 23. What we have in this chapter is Job's reply to Eliphaz. So this is Job's third reply to Eliphaz. Eliphaz has given three speeches, and his speech just took up chapter 22. And so now we have Job's reply to Eliphaz, and I've taken as a theme of this chapter, an uncomfortable faith. Hear God's word as it comes to us from Job 23. Then Job answered and said, Today also my complaint is bitter. My hand is heavy on account of my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat. I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know that he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. Would he contend with me in the greatness of his power? No, he would pay attention to me. There an upright man could argue with him, and I would be acquitted forever by my judge. Behold, I go forward, but he is not there, and backward, but I do not perceive him. On the left hand, when he is working, I do not behold him. He turns to the right hand, but I do not see him. But he knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I shall come out as gold." My foot has held fast to his steps. I have kept his way and have not turned aside. I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. But he is unchangeable, and who can turn him back? What he desires, that he does. For he will complete what he appoints for me, and many such things are in his mind. Therefore I am terrified at his presence. When I consider, I am in dread of him. God has made my heart faint. The Almighty has terrified me. Yet I am not silenced because of the darkness, nor because thick darkness covers my face. Our experience of faith is not always comfortable. We believe some things that we would rather not have to believe. For example, we believe that one day our lives here on earth will end with either our deaths or Jesus' return. And it's not that we don't want to believe in Jesus' return or in the hope of heaven. We certainly long for these things. At the same time, to experience these particular blessings, the life we know now has to end. And as a result, there is this, and it's normal, for there to be this this mixture of emotions as we exercise faith concerning the future. Our faith as it relates to our relationship with God also involves a mixture of emotions. For example, I would direct your attention to the opening of the Lord's Prayer, which teaches us to address God as our Father in heaven. So God is our Father, which speaks of his love, his warmth, and his welcoming nature, but that he is in heaven speaks to his transcendence, his otherness. It it emphasizes the the, uh, creator-creature distinction and how God is infinitely above us as our holy God. That God is our Father is a welcoming way for for us to, to pray to him, to know that we can pray openly and with great expectation of blessing. That God is in heaven reminds us that he is not to be trifled with. That he is a God of justice and wrath against sin, and that we can't dwell with him unless our sinfulness has been dealt with the point that we are completely righteous and holy, which we know by faith is possible through the Lord Jesus Christ. So what I'm describing is how we 
we know that God is loving and he's gracious. He's also righteous and just. And as we go through life, we face moments when we struggle in our faith and we understand what that man was going through who said to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. It's one typical example. We readily and gladly believe in God's love and grace in saving us, but sometimes struggle to understand and accept God planning suffering for us in this life. Taken as the theme of Job chapter 23, an uncomfortable faith. As I said a moment ago, this is Job's third reply to Eliphaz, who has given us his third speech in chapter 22. And Job's reply to Eliphaz also takes up chapter 24. But for chapter 23, what I see here is Job struggling in his faith, but also expressing faith. In fact, great faith. In fact, that's the first point that I want to bring out is Job expressing his faith. Second, we find what I am describing as Job's uncomfortableness. And then third, we find Job's response in which he sets forth his plan for the future. Consistent with our ups and downs of faith are Job's peaks and valleys as he expresses things that he knows are true, as well as talks about things that have left him perplexed and struggling. Nevertheless, with true faith, he is a man who holds on to what he knows to be true about God despite his inability to understand everything as he would, uh, as he would like. So this morning we, we focus on Job's faith. And Job starts out his reply to Eliphaz in a way that, it's, that shows that he's basically ignoring all of what Eliphaz has just said. Eliphaz in chapter 22 openly accused Job of very particular sins. He Uh, unlike what the friends have done up until this point, he actually names Job's sins against the neighbor and openly accuses Job of of these particular sins. And he accuses Job of loving gold and silver more than God. And he has called Job to repentance. And we see that Job doesn't respond to Eliphaz here in chapter 23 with repentance. Um, He doesn't come, he, he doesn't portray himself in this chapter as a penitent, um, acknowledging what Eliphaz has said, but rather he insists that something else is going on than a simple matter of God punishing a sinner who needs to repent. And he comes back to what has been an ongoing conviction that Job has already expressed several times, that he hopes that he can have a meeting with God and that God will finally clear up this matter and make it clear to him and to his friends what's really going on. So we look at, at verse 2. The meaning of that verse is, is hotly debated by commentators where Job says, Today also my complaint is bitter. My hand is heavy on account of my groaning. Most explanations of this verse focus on Job here. They say he's voicing his bitter pain as a way to prove that his friends have not helped. He wants his friends to know that he feels weak and discouraged and in general weighed down as pictured by his hand being heavy. And his heaviness is evidenced by his ongoing sighing, his, his groaning and discomfort. It's not difficult to predict how Eliphaz and his friends would respond if that was in fact what Job was seeking to convey. You know that they in exasperation would point out to Job that the key is doing Job, you need to be doing what we've said. If, if all Job is doing is complaining, I can imagine them replying, Job, it's, it's perfectly understandable that you've not had relief. And it's dishonest to say that our proposed 
solution doesn't work. We've told you that the solution is repentance. And yeah, repentance hasn't worked because you haven't done it. You reject it because you don't believe it's needed in your case, but that doesn't make our instruction to you wrong or irrelevant. You have to try it first before we are going to feel sorry for you in your misery. I can imagine Job anticipating that kind of response. And so it seems pointless really for verse 2 to be him simply highlighting and voicing his ongoing struggle. I believe that there's a different understanding of these verses as we look at the Hebrew, as we try to, to figure out, well, what fits with the context? Let me offer a translation and then explain it. And basically the translation that I propose is that of the New American Standard um, version of the Bible. And the translation would read this way. Even now my complaint is rebellion. My hand is heavy despite my groaning. So Job is speaking about really how his friends perceive him. Now this word that's translated as bitter in the ESV, it really means rebellion. It means defiance. Now it's a word that can refer to bitter circumstances that are result of rebellion and result of sin and defiance of God. But most of the time, this is a word that refers to rebellion against God. And so Job's point is that his complaint, his, his voicing of his struggles is always accounted by his friends as rebellion against God. And the proof of his rebellion, as they see it, is that his sighing and his groaning is not helping. Clearly, God is not listening. Job's hand remains heavy despite his groaning. And so Job then essentially is saying, I get what you've been saying and what you think about me. I get it that you think I'm in rebellion against God. I understand that things are not getting better and that the obvious reason for that, according to you, is that I must not be doing something right. God is not listening to me, and I understand that you take that as evidence of my rebellion. But we see that Job refuses to accept those conclusions and launches once again in expressing his desire to have a meeting with God. He agrees with his friends that God is not listening to his groaning, but this is exactly what propels Job to want a meeting with God. He knows that he's not in rebellion. He knows that he does not need to repent. And he says in verses 3 through 7 these words, Oh, that I knew, that I knew where I might find him, that is God, that I might even come to his seat. I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know what he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. Would he contend with me in the greatness of his power? No, he would pay attention to me. There an upright man could argue with him and I would be acquitted forever by my judge. By my judge. And we have in these verses Job expressing his faith also in verse 10 and also prevent presents the ground of his confidence in verses 11 and 12. Verses 3 through 7, we find Job once again wanting to approach God as a plaintiff. Verse 3, Job pictures God as seated on the bench as judge. In verse 4, Job pictures himself as approaching God and laying out his case before God. He, He describes himself as having a mouth ready with arguments, Uh, presumably to be made in his defense. According to verse 5, he believes he can anticipate what God is going to say in reply, and so he has all of his responses ready, which sounds potentially prideful. So perhaps what he's saying there in verse 5 is along um, a different angle. He might be saying that he longs to hear God's reply. 
and thus to understand God's perspective. Now, that sounds much more humble, but we do know that in either case, Job is more than ready for God to explain things to him. And while earlier Job was very much conflicted over the prospect of meeting with God, he's no longer in dread of a meeting. He's convinced that God will not be harsh or uncaring. Um, We see that Job has moved from an earlier perception of God as argumentative and ready to squash him with his power simply for asking questions. He believes that if, if this meeting would actually take place, that God will pay attention to what he says. And he is convinced that since he would be coming... Uh, he would be coming before God as an upright man if he and God would get a chance to argue. And we read that word and we think immediately, what? Arguing with God, that sounds wrong. That sounds wrong, um, horrible. But it's actually a legal word referring to uh, discourse that would take place in a courtroom, debating and reasoning over what is right. And he believes that he's, if he's able to have that kind of a conversation with God, that God will acquit him. So this is confidence, I would argue, that's born out of faith in God's covenant love. Now, let's be honest. It's possible that a person could say what Job here is saying out of pride and spiritual ignorance. There are people who are without sin and therefore not afraid of facing, uh, make sure I said the right thing here, people who think they are without sin and therefore are not afraid of facing God as judge. And of course, they are wrong to think that there would be nothing to fear. The Bible is clear that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and deserve his wrath. And so to stand before God claiming to be sinless, that would be about one of the most foolish things a person could do and will certainly result in destruction. Others think that they can argue their case with God by pointing out all of the good they've done or how religious they've been. They think that they can point out enough personal goodness to convince them, uh, to convince God to pronounce them not guilty and to let them into heaven. Within that category, there are even those who are so used to getting their way by being forceful and by wording things just the right way to their benefit. They're used to manipulating and lying and bullying people to their own advantage, and they think that they can do the same with God, that they could sit down with God and argue their case and point out all of the goodness they've done and, and, and could get God to, to feel guilty almost if, they were to, if he was to pronounce them to hell. But is that a description of Job? Is that what's going on here with Job? No, because God has said that Job is blameless and upright. And God's word in Ezekiel tells us that Job is righteous. And the only way to be righteous in the sight of God is by faith. And since the word of God says that Job is righteous, then we automatically know he is a man of genuine faith. And so as we think of this case that Job would lay before God, we anticipate that as a man of faith, Job's not going to plead for mercy on the basis of good works, even though he has good works. But he would, we would expect Job to lay out the fact that he's put his faith in God's covenant promises, which include the, the promises to bless and to forgive those who seek his grace. Of course, even in the Old Testament, faith was centered in the Messiah. And though it was a faith in the Messiah to come, the essence of faith was there, which is trusting in God to provide a Savior who will atone for our sins and make us right with him. Essentially, the content of faith is trusting God to save us from our sins by taking care of our sin problem for us by his grace. It's trusting God to satisfy his justice against our sins and impute righteousness to us. Now, have you noticed how Job has been growing 
in his faith, how he's been growing in his understanding of his spiritual need that only God can provide. Earlier on, back in Job chapter 9, Job expressed the very same desires we find here in chapter 23 of being given a chance to have his day in court with God. But as he thought, I'm talking now about chapter 9, as he, he, as he thought about what he would say and how there doesn't seem to be anything to say to God but to accuse him of injustice, that's what he was thinking back then, Job then knows that taking God to court isn't going to go well. I think that's a pretty good prediction. If you go to court with God and you're planning to accuse him of injustice, yeah, that's not going to go well. But at that time, he can't think of anything else to explain what he's going through. A solution that enters his mind is maybe there can be an arbiter, some kind of mediator that can put his hand on God's shoulder and on his shoulder and work something out between them. Someone who'd be able to stand up to God with authority and yet would be willing to condescend and take up his cause. So we read back in chapter 9, beginning at verse 32, these words. Job says, For he is not a man, as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. Let him take his rod away from me, and let not dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak without fear of him. I am not so in myself. See that this idea of a mediator, an arbiter, begins to take form in his mind, and he can see the need for one, but yet at the same time can't imagine how there could be a person who could bridge this gap between God and man, between God and himself. And then in chapter 16, the real possibility of a heavenly mediator begins to crystallize for Job. In chapter 16, 19, he, he says there, Even now, behold, my witness is in heaven, and he who testifies for me is on high. And so in chapter 16, Job expresses confidence that this mediator that he expressed that he needs back in chapter 9, but he can't imagine how that, how that could really work out. But now he's saying he has confidence that this mediator he needs exists. Our earlier study of chapter 16 focused on Job's exact words and brought out that Job is beginning to understand that this mediator between, between him and God is somehow God and man. He doesn't have it all figured out, but with an eye of faith, he's begun to see that a mediator between him and God is not just a nice idea, but he actually exists. He is one who is in heaven with God, and yet according to verse 21 of 16, is God. And, there, and we, we, we come across this very interesting idea of God arguing the case of a man with God. Job's choice of words is mysterious because it's hard even for us in the New Testament to put into words the mystery of the incarnation, this mystery of God himself taking on human flesh in order to provide a human mediator who can plead our cause with God who is himself God. I can't think of almost a greater mystery than that, and we can see Job is beginning to understand something of that. But what is a vague hope for Job in chapter 16 is a clearer hope in chapter 19, where Job professes his faith in his living Redeemer, who will give him victory over death. Job's Redeemer is a man who will stand on the earth. He's someone Job will see, and remember it's impossible for us to see our invisible God. He's a spirit. 
And yet Job says that in seeing his Redeemer, he will see God. Well, this mystery is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. It is Jesus whom Job sees with prophetic eyes granted by the Holy Spirit. For Jesus is the divine Son of God, but also a man. Because in a marvelous, mysterious, and miraculous way, the Son of God became man by taking to himself human flesh. And so Job has a sure knowledge consistent with living faith that his covenant God has provided a redeemer for sinners like him in fulfillment of his salvation promises. And Job in faith knows that his redeemer will stand, stand in his place and pay the price to make him God's own possession. That's what a redeemer does. That's the meaning of the word. And Job is clearly looking to God's redeemer for his salvation and thus believes he is justified by faith and not by works. And now knowing that the mediator that God provides is himself God, Job is certain that a meeting with God will go all right. One commentator catching this new attitude, this perspective on on Job's part, titles chapter 23, a statement of confidence. So now rather than going to court to accuse God of injustice and in the end being condemned, Job now envisions his time in court as productive. Verses 6 and 7 are the words of a man who's no longer afraid of a meeting with God. Well, how would that be? Well, we picture Job, if granted a meeting with God, pleading for his justification on the basis of faith in a God who himself wants Job to be justified. And we know that because he's provided a redeemer, this one who is God and man, who will one day stand on his grave. And the result is that though he has died, his body will be raised that in his flesh he can see God. But understand, Job is not just thinking about these things in a general way. Job is thinking about a very specific problem that doesn't seem to line up with his justified state and with what he knows is this glorious future that awaits him. The problem is that he is being made to suffer immense pain and loss as a righteous child of God. And the case that Job wants to lay out is a plea for God to agree he's righteous and upright and therefore not worthy of the treatment that he has received. This will then provide the background for answering the deeper questions of why God is treating a righteous man the way he is. But before that, Job longs for the assurance that he is indeed righteous, as God has promised to people of faith like him. The problem is that while Job believes he has faith, and he has a love for God that belongs to a saving personal relationship with God, yet for some reason, as Job sees it, God is not allowing him to experience fellowship. The emphasis being on the word experience. He believes that he's in fellowship with God, but he is not feeling it. God seems distant, and this is part of the uncomfortableness that Job has in his experience of faith, a reality that's expressed in this chapter, That will be the subject of the second main point of our outline, which we're not going to get to this morning. But even though Job's experience is that God is distant, he has the certainty of faith that God sees him. Verses uh, 9 and 10, the second part of verse 9, moving into verse 10, it says, On the left hand, when he is working, I do not behold him. He turns to the right hand, but I do not see him. But he knows the way that I take. Reminded of the wording of the children's catechism 
where we have the question, can you see God? And the answer is no, I cannot see God, but he always sees me. And knowing this truth is what enables Job to make the great statement of faith that follows, when he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. Job has latched on to the idea that perhaps what he is going through is a test. It's not judgment, it's a test. He understands more than he probably realizes. What stands out as a statement of faith is this assurance of Job that he shall come out as gold. And as I've evaluated these words, I think Job here is is, uh, convinced potentially of four things. Maybe some of these, maybe all of these things. There are at least four implications of this concept of being tried and coming out as gold. So first, Job is probably expressing a knowledge born of faith that he will pass God's test. He knows that as a person of faith who is righteous in God's sight, as a justified sinner, God is testing him for the purpose of proving that he is a genuine child of God, loved by him. Now, if that's what Job's thinking, he's exactly right, because when God tries you as his people, it's not to see if he can undo your faith. It's not a test to try to prove you false. No, it's the exact opposite. Gold ore is put into the fire not to destroy it, but to prove that genuine gold is present. Now, of course, what happens is that anything that is not actually gold will burn away, but yet the gold remains. The purpose is really to, to show that there is gold here. And in a similar way, God tries us in the crucible of tribulations in order to prove that we have genuine faith. And his goal is to put your faith on display in the midst of trials in order to make it clear that your faith is a true, lasting conviction of the heart and not just a passing testimony of your lips. It's a way of proving the nature of genuine faith as a leaning on God for who he is and not simply for what he can give us. And I hope that 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 wording makes makes you think back to the very purpose of Uh, of God's trial of Job that that we find in the opening chapters of Job where Satan offers the challenge, does Job fear God for no reason? And Satan went on to explain that, God, you've put a hedge around Job. You're you're protecting him from life's troubles. You've, You've prospered everything that he does. You've blessed him in all of these ways. That's why he loves you. That's the implication, right? That Job is serving God only for the sake of the earthly blessings that God gives. But for Job to continue to trust God after taking away everything precious in his earthly life would prove that his faith is actually in God for who he is. Trials can and do serve to show Satan and the world and us that we are pure gold. And we are pure gold all along because we are righteous by faith in Jesus Christ. This truth is confirmed in the New Testament when in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, the apostle there writes, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that, notice the wording, the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor, the revelation of Jesus Christ. So often trials are given to us to prove that we are people of faith. God's intention is that we will pass the test, that we will stand, 
and it will be evident that we are gold. Another thing Job uh, could be certain about is that one day his trials will end. He doesn't totally understand the purposes of God's trials, which is, why at the, which is at the heart of why he will continue to struggle with these trials that he is facing. Yet it sounds like he is beginning to understand, to have some idea of how God uses trials in the lives of his people for good. But regardless of God's present purposes in his trials, Job's faith at least tells him that one day this test will end. Think of it, to come out as gold implies that the gold has gone through a process. And that process has ended. And so Job, by faith, is convinced that one day these judgments that he is experiencing will end. Now, apart from faith and the righteousness of Christ, there is no reason to expect the judgments of God to ever end. In fact, they won't end for those who die in their sin. Second Thessalonians 1, verses 7 and 9, these verses assert that one day Jesus will be revealed from heaven, quote, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. But for those of us who know we are loved by God, people of faith, the hope of an end to our trials is certain. A few verses earlier in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, we are told that when Jesus is revealed from heaven, he will grant relief to believers who are afflicted. Revelation 21 tells us that the day is coming when we will dwell with God in the new heaven and new earth and for his people, that is for us, he will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Yes, there are trials, but eventually we come out. We come forth as gold. And then third, trials serve our good by refining us. That is by serving our sanctification. It's uncertain if to what degree Job understands this particular blessing, but this is a blessing that God has ordained to come from our suffering. The analogy is that a testing of gold involves exposing it to intense heat, and the result is not only a confirmation and proof that real gold is present, but of course what also happens is that impurities are burned away. The dross is separated from the gold, and it's able to be separated. And along these lines, the New Testament teaches that your trials as believers serve to burn away your sinful corruption. In other words, trials make you more like Christ in your character. James chapter 1 teaches that you are to count it joy when you face trials because why? The testing of your faith produces steadfastness. We are told that if you develop steadfastness in the face of trials, this is how you become perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And there the apostles talking about spiritual growth, spiritual perfection. Trials are key to our growing in steadfastness, which is key to our ultimate sanctification. The Apostle Paul says much the same thing in Romans 5 when he says, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And that's really the same Greek word that is translated as steadfastness there in James 1, where he says 
The testing of your faith produces steadfastness. It could be translated there, endurance. In Romans 5, when it says we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, that could be steadfastness. It could also be translated perseverance. Suffering produces endurance, perseverance, steadfastness. And then the apostle there in Romans 5 says, and endurance produces character and character hope. And 2 Corinthians 4.17 says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us. It's working for us. An eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Afflictions serve to prepare us for the glory of being with the Lord. And fourth, that Job will come out as gold testifies to the knowledge that we can have as people of faith that we are precious to God. Gold is universally considered a precious metal. And that God would use, or that, sorry, that Job would use an analogy that refers to himself as gold indicates that he trusts in God's love for him. Though he doesn't feel God's love in his circumstances, his faith rises above his feelings. And he trusts in his relationship with God that God's will is to bless him. It doesn't seem like it would be coincidence that in chapter 22, Eliphaz has told Job to lay down earthly gold and let the Almighty be his gold and precious silver. So Eliphaz was back there in chapter 22 confronting what he believes is Job's idolatry. He accused Job essentially of loving gold and silver, of loving earthly wealth more than gold, I mean, than God. Uh, loving gold and, and silver more than God. And now in chapter 23, notice how Job picks up on the word gold and refers to himself as gold. By faith, he knows that his present trials are somehow not incompatible with God's love for him. As we close this morning's sermon, let's, let's consider the closing verses of this chapter. Verse 16 belongs really to Job's uncomfortableness, which will be considered more next time. Um, Even though he is a man of faith, he acknowledges there in verse 16, God has made my heart faint. The Almighty has terrified me. Yet, notice the word there, yet, verse 17. Here's the part that I want to have you see as an expression of Job's faith. He says, I am not silenced because of the darkness, nor because thick darkness covers my face. This darkness refers to Job's inability to understand God's ways with him. No, I think he's beginning to understand something of those ways, but he still feels like he's very much in the dark. We use that expression, right, that we are in the dark when we are left out of the loop of of being told or understanding what's going on. And Job feels like he's in the dark, and yet he will not be silenced. He will not give up calling upon God, seeking answers from God, trying to understand what God is doing. He's not going to give up on God and his covenant promises. He's not going to resign himself to just the idea that, well, I must be hated by God. I must be under God's eternal judgment. No, his faith tells him that the very God who terrifies him is the God to seek and who will ultimately show himself to be Job's redeemer. Child of God, don't give up when you face trials that leave you in the dark of trying to understand God's purposes. Yes, our God is powerful. There is nothing that we could do if he were to destroy us. And there may be moments when we doubt God's love, but then faith rises up 
and latches on to the hope that this powerful God has actually in love given his only son to redeem us from sin. And he tries us. Yes, he tests us. But for the purpose of our coming out as gold. If you think about it, this, this verse, this verse about coming out as gold, verse, verse 10, is really the Old Testament version of the New Testament verse. Romans 8, the good news that for those who love God, he is working all things together for our good. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your covenant love. We thank you, Father, for Jesus, our Redeemer, that one who is both your son and one of us, son of David. And Father, we thank you for faith that stands the tests that you give us because you have worked faith in us, because you are the one who sustains the faith that you have planted in us. You are the God who, who, who will not let us go. And Father, we admit that we struggle, that our faith is not what it ought to be, but we thank you for the hope that we will come out of our testing as gold, that it will be in fact proven that we are people in whom you have planted true faith. We will come out as those sanctified, recognizing how the trials that we have gone through have developed Christian character in us, that being required to be steadfast, to endure, has been helpful in strengthening us spiritually and making us like Christ. And thank you, Father, for also this reminder of the fact that we are precious to you. Father, we acknowledge that we believe, while at the same time we, Lord, ask that you will help our unbelief. We, Lord, acknowledge that our hope of salvation is not our faith. It's not having strong faith. Our hope of salvation is the object of our faith which is the Savior that you have given to us, your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.